teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Well, Eric did an excellent job of talking about uh, what is Crown Heart World. And the main thing is it's a tool to help us process our own personal stories through God's story. And so the handout that you have is the same thing on both sides, and it's a practice sheet. And so it's like in sports where the coach makes you do drills, and you're like, can we just scrimmage? And it's like, no, not yet. You've got to keep doing the drills. And the idea is that the better we get at drawing this out, um, the better we get at framing a discipline in our minds of how to process God's overall story in a way to interpret our own personal story. And the reason we want to be able to do that is because we want three basic things. We want a sense of meaning, that I'm actually part of the right cause. Uh, we want a sense of hope, that being a part of this cause is actually leading to something. And then a sense of direction, of where am I right now in this meaningful um, relationship to Christ that gives me this future hope so that whatever I'm doing right now connects to that long-term goal. And so you just had mention of someone moving from Virginia. We're just talking about somebody moving from the Philippines. And there's always these different transitions that we go through. And when we do, one of the hardest things is reframing who am I and what am I doing? And we do that often when we present ourselves to others. Uh, so if you would, uh, look in um, Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to look at some stuff together. I dug this up when uh, I was invited to preach downtown. Um, Lee Shaw was going through a series of things, and so he said, hey, we've got to do this thing on death. Uh, would you like to preach for me? And uh, we talked about in rugby, that's called a hospital pass. When all the guys are coming to tackle you and you've got the ball, and right before they get there, you turn to your buddy and you throw it to them. <laughs> Boom. So we began to talk about death, but the real interesting thing about focusing on death is it provides a framework about how you live your life. That when you know what you're willing to die for, you know what you're here to live for. And that framing of an ultimate sense of what really matters is what gives us strength day to day. It's what keeps us on track day to day. Uh, without it, what we end up doing is we struggle for how can I experience life, and we tend to grab at it spontaneously. And many of our problems with spontaneous uh, looking for quick-term gratification is based on this impulse for survival that hasn't been trained in discipline to fit within a more meaningful story so that we don't just think short-term gratification, that we think long-term value. And we're willing to die to the short-term benefits so that we can yield the long-term benefits. The goal is to really live and to live fully, but in doing that, uh, we have to sometimes do some counterintuitive processing. So to give us a, an opener for those, how many of y'all, this is the first time to see Crown Howard World, just so I can get a sense of about three or four of us? All right, here's a one-minute version, and then we'll dive in in Hebrews 2. Life is a puzzle. We experience good and bad all the time. The challenge is to find meaning and hope. A way that can help is a story with five basic parts. Here it is in a simple sketch called Crown Heart World. A crown represents God as our creator. The heart and world show that he made us in the world in which we live. That's why we experience good and why we love meaning. 
But the story also tells how humanity and the world got turned upside down and lost access to the Creator. The good news is that the Creator came into the world to show goodness in the life of a man, to correct what is wrong through his death, and to show that good overcomes bad by raising him to new life. Now we know more about our Creator than before. Even though life is still hard, we trust in the one God provided and experience real change. The hope is that one day everything will be new and good and restored to what is best. This site will explain more about this story and how it reveals meaning to our lives. All right. Well, if you want, you've got a practice sheet there. And if you've been working on it, see what you can do of uh, filling in as we go. And uh, then we'll do a second time towards the end. And uh, I find it really handy because I go to different conferences and meetings and stuff. And what I'll do is I'll just doodle Crown Heart World as I'm going. And then, of course, if anyone says, you know, why aren't you paying attention? Why are you doodling? It looks really spiritual then to say I was just practicing the overall biblical story. But, no, it really does help to constantly be able to process. So that's part of the training we want to get everyone to be doing. In Hebrews chapter 2, we have this really interesting story in verses 14 through 18. And in it, um, the beginning of Hebrews has started out, God at various times in various ways has spoken to our forefathers in the past. But in these last days, these ultimate days, he's spoken to us in son. And what you'll see on your picture there is column one talks about the creation, crown heart world. Column two, the world and the heart have flipped upside down. Things are out of order, and as a result, there's no access towards God. So here's how things ought to be. Here's how things have been flipped upside down like a canoe that's upside down. Our view of God has been eclipsed. And we have this panic of death, that we're not going to make it, that we're suffocating. And the imagery of being underwater and suffocating helps us, but we're told that we were created in the image of God and God is love, and that what really causes us to panic in life is the lack of giving and receiving appropriate love. And as men will often translate love in terms of respect, of saying that I've lost this sense of self-respect or other people respecting me and where do I fit in and am I acknowledged appropriately and do I have anything to contribute? And in this panic, we lose the sense of transcendence. And so at the beginning of Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, that arrow coming down is essentially the entire Old Testament God at various times in various ways speaking to our forefathers in the past, but in these ultimate days speaking to us in Son. And that's where in column three we hear the story of redemption, and we see in Christ the first Adam went from a position of life, and he chose separation from God, and it resulted in death. And here we see Christ then as the second Adam is going to reenact many of the stories of the Old Testament as life and show the antithesis of how we should deal with things, and the main point for today is this, life to death is the way of failure, death to life is the way of hope. We start off empowered with blessings, we try to control it, and it leads to death. That's what happens in Adam, that's what happens in much of the Old Testament, 
And when we try to make it uh, morality tells, when we read the Old Testament of various people who just got everything right and were rewarded for living right, we don't understand the Old Testament. Uh, when I taught it up at uh, Houston Baptist University, it was fascinating to have students that were really anxious about studying the Old Testament. None of them were happy to be there. It was required course. And, uh, and so we had, because it's a very diverse university, but it's because as a Baptist university, everyone's going to take Old Testament, New Testament uh, survey and basic Christianity. And so we had people in there that were um, backslidden Baptist, Pentecostals, Catholic, Sikh, Buddhist, Muslim, Hindu, the entire range. And none of them were excited about learning the Old Testament. And when I revealed to them that the Old Testament isn't the way we've often been taught uh, as kids about these great uh, people who every, always got things right, but it's more like a telenovela, more like a soap opera of people who ought to get it right but botched it, and that it reveals that even with broken people, there's hope. People got interested. By the end of the semester, it was great that people found a new sense of hope that even in our mixed up and broken lives, things can go forward. So God has been communicating that all along. Think of David, for example. His story is shooting up, 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 and then when you get to the pinnacle of his success, that's when he has his sin with Bathsheba, and it goes down, 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 and his family falls apart. So even the best heroes in the Old Testament fall short of the glory of God. Christ then comes, and he does things differently. Um, when we begin Matthew, we hear John the Baptist talking about the failure of Israel to live up to the promises. Jesus comes forward, and he stands with the kingdom of God. He's baptized to demonstrate his allegiance to the kingdom of God, and he then is pushed out into the desert. And he's pushed into the wilderness. Essentially, what he's doing is he's reliving the Exodus experience. 40 years in the desert, here's Jesus 40 days in the wilderness. And the temptations that they had of complaining about, we don't have enough food, we don't have enough water, we at least had that in Egypt, and if we could just preserve our lives, we'd be okay. But Jesus has this ability to say, life has to be more than just survival. And he resists the temptation to try to cling to life and to control it himself, and in releasing that control of life, he finds life. He comes out of the wilderness. He's empowered uh, with not only this victory over the fear of death, but he's also empowered then to proclaim this and in uh, miraculous events, cast out demons, do miracles, and he gathers this huge multitude. And you find that in Matthew 4. And that's when he does the Sermon on the Mount. And 5, 6, and 7, he explains that the way things work are the opposite that the world will tell you. And you've heard it said before, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, mercy, and turn the other cheek. And in doing so, what he describes looks like weakness and failure, but he explains that this is actually the power of life. As you get into Hebrews 2, the warning in verses 1 through 4 is, well, somebody tell me, what's the basic warning in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Neglect. What's another word you got? You're right, by the way. Drift. Yeah, it's not Tokyo drift, right? It, it's kingdom of God drift. It's life drift. 
And the warning is, he has this glorious chunk in Hebrews chapter 1 that says, this whole huge story is coming forward to you, and you've heard it, but you're constantly in danger of drifting from it to something else. And so he basically says, wake up. And here you guys are, early in the morning, you discipline yourselves to get up, fit it into your schedule, uh, come in here, and to be thinking about, I don't want to drift. So you get that. In Jesus' life, he was constantly challenged with this idea of compromise. And he faced challenges with this willingness that I have an overall purpose that I won't compromise. For example, the rich young ruler wanted to strike a deal with him. And he's like, hey, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And he says, you know what? Um, even though you just told me that you've done all these various things and you understand the, the basic story and you've been a good person, if you really want to be, and he uses this interesting word, teleios, or telos, like a telescope. A telescope, like think of an old-fashioned telescope that's compact. If you really want to be fully extended to all you are, come and follow me. And in order to follow me, you need to liquidate everything that you're trusting in, your wealth. All right, so the rich young ruler says, what was his answer to that invitation? I can't. I have too much security in the story I'm currently living, which is I'm a wealthy, prosperous person. And that's what gives me identity. That's what gives me strength. I want you to bless the story that I control. I don't want you to invite me into your story where I lose control. And he went away sad because he couldn't manage to have Jesus bless his way of controlling his life. And the disciples are kind of weirded out. And they're like, Jesus, have you not gone to evangelism training? What's wrong with you? <laughs> you know? You got this seeker guy here. Why don't you work a deal with him and just have him hang out and eventually he'll just kind of catch on? And why was Jesus so confident and decisive to just let the guy go? Any guess? Yeah, one is you can talk about his transcendent knowledge as, as the second person of the Trinity. But even in the story, there's a confidence that he has. Anybody else? What's another reason that shows up in the story? He's going for the heart. And what does he know about the guy's heart? Yeah, the guy understood him. You're patient with people who don't understand you yet. But y'all have done this in doing deals with people, and you get to a point, and you understand each other, but there's just, you can't do the deal. Stop wasting your time. And he realized the guy totally understood him and had said no. And so he's trying to tell his disciples, you can't force this story into a control story. It doesn't work. If he's not willing to die to himself, there's no way forward. As you read on down in Hebrews... Uh, chapter 2, what you then find is this really strange passage in verses, um, I think it picks up in verses 8 through 10. Let's see if we can get somebody to read that out loud for us. Somebody read Hebrews 2, 8 through 10. All right. Does anyone find something strange about that way of speaking? There's something really strange in there. Particularly at the conclusion. So as we start through this and we talk about um, in putting everything in subjection to him, nothing was left outside of his control, but we do not see everything yet. That's good, and that's part of what we talk about with both column uh, two and four, 
which is we don't fully see all of reality. But then it says something really strange about Jesus in verse 10. What is that? All right, he's suffering. Right. All right. So this is one of the things that's really important. Philippians 2, it says, though, being in the very form of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be snatched or grabbed. And the, the word that's used there goes back to Adam and Eve seeing the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the ability to define what's right and wrong by yourself, and they grabbed and snatched for it. And instead, although having the full deity, he did not have the same practice of grabbing but instead emptied himself and was found in the form of a man. And not just found in the form of a man, found in the form of a man who was a servant. And he was obedient, and not just obedient, but obedient unto death. And not just any death, but the death of a cross. And for that reason, God exalted him to the highest place that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This understanding of him being able to resist control and grabbing for himself, even to the point of death, is what gave him an understanding of life now and life forever. And here's the thing that we want to learn, is that Christ not only gives us this undeserved gift of life over death, he also gives us a way of living where we face the fear of death and we don't give in to panic and trying to control. But we're willing to die to ourselves, and when we do, the power of life happens now and in the future. And that is the hardest lesson of Christianity. Death to yourself. And it's not so that you gain salvation. What immediately follows this is a really interesting thing in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, Uh, Paul says, work out your salvation, therefore, with fear and trembling. And it's kind of funny when you go back to original language, sometimes you can, you know, impress people. And actually, the fear and trembling is phobos and trembos, which translates into English, what do you think? Fear and trembling. (laughs) And what he describes is, you've been given this, now work out the implications of this free gift of salvation, and immediately he describes the exodus. And instead of being grumbling complainers who are trying to manage being selfish in a free salvation life, learn how to live this courageous way of living uh, that frees you from complaining and gives you confidence and strength. In there, then, as we go in Hebrews, what's verse 10 that really stands out as strange? All right, he's our source. He's the one who founded us. All existence is connected to him. What was the effect of suffering on him? Perfection. Now, what's the antithesis of perfection? What's the opposite? Imperfection. So does that look like there's a problem in that verse? Jesus was made perfect. How do you guys interpret that? As if he wasn't. Well, here's the thing again. That's teleios, and that's that telescope thing. It's not that he was imperfect. It has to do with complete, to be fully fitted, to be mature, to be fully extended. And it's going to explain to us in what way he became complete. Did he become perfect, complete, 
mature fitted for his deity? The answer would be, no, that doesn't work at all. And you go back just to Hebrews 1, and it talks about he's always been God, fully God. Um, so that's not what's going on. Is he sinful and becomes unsinful? And the answer is no, that doesn't work. But something does work. Let's follow through and see what it is that he's become complete for. For what? Live, die, and resurrect, and as a result, be able to represent us. And so what it describes then is he becomes qualified to be a representative of you because the first Adam you've got there in column one couldn't handle life but chose to control things and ended up with death. And Jesus has the ability to, through suffering, continue to resist the temptation to take control himself and instead continue to trust the Father. And so he lives a human life the way human life was meant to be so that he can be a substitute. What will follow then, as it talks about in the section that in between, is he's not ashamed to call you brothers. And the reason is he's been through the stuff you've been through, and he's done it for you. And then this is the part we want to get to in verses 14 and following. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through what? Through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What's the source of our slavery? That's where we translate. Read the, the same text. It's not sin. It's fear of death, which leads to sin. So how does fear of death lead to sin? Make the wrong choice. Cease to let... Everybody know what FOMO means? It's a younger thing. Fear of missing out. FOMO. What happens to us is we panic that if we don't, since Krispy Kreme has come back to Houston, that if we don't find out where it's located and get there when the light's on, we're going to miss out. And we're panicking in this craving for life and as a result, we have this impulse that when something attractive is put before us, we lunge towards it. And the fear is, if I don't grab after every sense of satisfaction in life, I'm just going to die. Even if it's this slow, boring death of, I just hate my life and I'm not satisfied. That's how pornography works. That's how financial, ethical, um, bad decisions works. That's how erupting in anger and the different challenges that as men we face repetitively where we ask, I want to ask for forgiveness, but I feel conflicted because I have no confidence that I'm not going to do the same thing again in the future. And what's the impulse in there is I want to be alive. And this struggle for survival means I have this obsessive concern to be in control and that by saying no to things that have the potential to gratify me, 
that I'm not going to be fully alive. And that's how the fear of death leads to sin. Is, is in the times that we give in to sin, anger, lust, selfishness, whatever, it's this compulsion that somehow hidden in that sin is more life than abstaining from that sin. And we live in this panic. So what's going to be the solution? The solution is when we actually grow in confidence that saying no to sin gives more life, not less life. It's not just that we feel ashamed enough. If you feel ashamed enough, it's not going to, it's not going to work. Sooner or later, you're going to have enough honoriness and courage to say, shame doesn't hold me back. I'm just going to go for it. Until you actually believe that there's greater joy in restraint than in impulse, you'll never succeed. And where this will go is Hebrews 12, where Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the shame and the suffering of the cross on our behalf. It wasn't out of fear of the Father. It wasn't out of compulsion. It was out of a greater joy. And so that's what we're going to need. So in Hebrews 2, 14 um, through 16, the slavery that all of us feel, uh, 15 rather, he then says in verses 16 something that's really interesting, 16 through 18, and we'll stop at this and have some interaction time. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Genesis 1 through 11 explains how humanity got messed up. It starts with Adam and Eve, and it's got this spiral downward, and it ends with the Tower of Babel and people trying to control the world, but they just make it worse and worse all the time. And then it links in Hebrews 12 and says, we're going to stop talking about the overall problem of humanity. And I'm going to tell you about this one guy, Abram, that gets called out, and he's going to be blessed to be a blessing. And through him, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And that's where you really see the theme of redemption for the rest of the Bible, is Genesis 12, 1 through 3 and going forward. So all the promises to Abraham ultimately lead towards Jesus. And so he's there to help the offspring of Abraham, verse 16, 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. How much like us? How much is Jesus like us in verse 17? In every way, in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, atoning sacrifice, to pay the debt for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Um, Krispy Kreme. We did Cinnabon last week, by the way, so now we're like stepping up. How much of a resistance to Krispy Kreme do you guys have? If we had a temptometer from zero to ten... And we just, like, cranked it up from, like, cold um, Krispy Kreme all the way to, like, piping hot, fresh, and really good espresso coffee next to it. What number would you guys give in? Like, on the temptometer, how long could you hold out? A one, two, like, ah, you know. What do you think? Wow. 
Yeah, we, we've got a surprise for uh, missions pastor William Taylor because we're bringing in uh, Krispy Kreme this morning for uh, a birthday surprise. It's his birthday on Sunday, so it's kind of on my mind. And you think about the things, and I even saw a billboard recently about um, a hamburger place, and it said it's worth cheating for, like on your diet that you have a cheat day. And the, the sense is that we all have a certain temptometer leveled at which point it's like, forget it, I can't, I just got to go for it. And that all of us resist things that we know we don't want to do, and there comes a point where the temptation is too much. So here's my question to you. Has Jesus been tempted as much as you, less than you, or more than you? Yeah. I I don't know what it's like to get to an eight on the temptometer with Krispy Kreme. I rationalize and say, well, you know, everybody else says I don't want to make them feel guilty for eating it, so I'll eat it for them. I've got workarounds, (laughs) right? I'll take the stairs later or something. But he pushes past 8 and 9 and 10, and he doesn't yield at 10. The point is, when you look at the failures of your own ideals that you want to live up to, and you don't live up to your ideals, it's not what others put on you. It's the stuff you put on yourself and you say, for my own integrity's sake, this is the man I wish I really was all the time. And temptation to be other than who you want to be gets you and you crack and give in. Jesus can be a faithful and merciful high priest because he knows what that experience is like because he's been there. And where he is made perfect, to lay off complete, is he is completely able to identify with your struggle because he's been there. And until he walked and experienced this as a person who had released access to his deity, Philippians 2, and said, though still being fully God, he experienced life as a man. And the workarounds that we see in Jesus' life are not from his deity. When Jesus copes with problems in his life, it's from trust in the Father and the Spirit. And he's functioning as the second Adam. He goes through life just like we do. And that's where when we started this course, we talked about in 1 John 2, 6, that if we've received this forgiveness, how should we live? Anybody remember from 1 John 2, 6? Live the way Jesus did. And that in doing this, we both receive his constant sense of grace and mercy for forgiving us, but we also learn, it's like, all right, Jesus, teach me how to do this. Teach me how to go counterintuitive. And instead of obsessing over trying to be in control, where it's, I have life, but I'm trying to get control of it, now I'm caught in death, Teach me how you died to yourself and as a result found life because that's the situation I'm in now. And what we'll find is the major theme throughout Scripture is life to death. That's our failure. And then through Jesus, he experienced life to death in a way that leads to death to life. And that now the Christian way is death to life. That sounds really philosophical and weird, but we're going to get into practicing it for a second. So if you would, there at your uh, table, try to finish filling out the diagram and begin to talk with yourselves about the question of temptation and Jesus's ability to understand and help us through that temptation and get ready for some questions because uh, I think I've opened up 17 tabs 
worth of uh, theological ideas, and we want to tighten it up here before we finish. So take a second, try to finish that out, and try to rehearse in your mind this, this overall story of life to death versus death to life. Eric brought up a good point. Column two shows the problem. Column four shows where we are and how to deal with the problem. So you go back and forth between them, but our main obsession is we want to get good at column four. All right, we're going to do two things to end. All right, part of the thing on your sheet, the reason that I started off with the default of having those two hearts is this is the most practical way to use this most of the time. The beginning and the end of creation and the ultimate hope, those are all where we want everyone to understand ultimately, but practically for ourselves, other Christians, and when we share the gospel, and this is part of what we were talking about, here's the fundamental problem is why does my heart turn upside down and betray my own ideals? That's the common problem that everybody struggles with in life. And that the promise of the gospel is that in Christ, because you trust him, your heart gets turned upside down, upside right in terms of identity, that now you are identified with Christ through his resurrection. And not only does it get turned upside down positionally, that you are now forgiven, redeemed, purified in Christ, but you now begin to grow in that new reality to live the identity that you've been given. Just like if a child has been um, raised on the streets of Rio and they're running around sniffing glue, stealing, stealing stuff, doing whatever they can to survive, and someone was to say, I'm going to adopt you, and they say, I'd love to be adopted. When they get adopted, their status changes, but their habits have not changed. And as an adopted child into that family, part of what's going to come as the benefit of being adopted in that family is increasingly learning the waves of that family. The impulses to reach out and grab for yourself will still be there. But over time, you're reassured that even when you fail, you don't get kicked out of the family. And that there's understanding of these embedded habits and ways of behavior but there's also enough love to say you're better than that. And with grace and mercy and discipline, I'm going to help you to not keep having your heart flip upside down in panic and grab through impulse, but instead maintain your balance. And so for all of us as Christians, we've been adopted into the family of God. We have our identity in Christ. But every single one of us today, you will find times that your heart will naturally flip upside down You'll forget about God, and you'll reach out to try to control your situation in ways that you know are different than what they ought to be. 1 John 1, 9 says, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Why? Because he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So whatever impulse failure you have, Christ takes ownership of it. That's what he died for was that column two upside-down heart. And because he knew no sin, his death provides surplus to pay for the death of, or the sin of others. All right, so that helps us. Um, but Gus was talking about this also helps when you're sharing the gospel with somebody. And they're talking about their problems in life and how they don't feel loved and they don't, 
love others back and they're self-destructive or whatever. You listen to someone and you talk about the gospel in a very experiential way about this struggle of love and discipline, respect and satisfaction in life. And you talk about through Christ, not only receiving, but living in that as part of the hope that you're inviting people into. What we'll explain as we go forward then is these three arrows will talk about the main disciplines of how you grow up, faith, hope, and love. Through faith, we learn the story better, and we grow confident that God is trustworthy. Hope is where this is ultimately leading, and that's heaven and earth reconciled, where we no longer sin, and we have total satisfaction. But love is how we engage a broken world the way Jesus did, with courage to do the right thing. Faith, hope, and love. And you'll see it show up all throughout the Old Testament. So any questions before I give one last uh, encouragement before you go? Is that starting to fit the practical use of it? One of the things that I've heard is that, yeah, it makes sense, but it's got so much in there you can easily get lost uh, as you're looking at... Uh, you know, what all is it saying and, and where do you go with it? Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, totally willing to help. And the, the thing is, it's, this is on one picture. Seriously, I can teach over a year of systematic theology on it. And so it's got a lot of stuff that's folded in there. But what you want to mainly do is just focus on that struggle between column two and column four. And in doing so, to realize that certain verses that seem um, extravagant, uh, beyond really being able to do, actually are able to be lived out. And let me just read those as part of our conclusion here. Mark sixteen twenty five. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Mark um, eight thirty four. And calling to the crowd to him, I'm sorry. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Or Luke 9, if anyone come after me, deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will actually save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet he forfeits his own soul himself? John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 12.24, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth, and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Or Romans 8.13, for if you live according to flesh, what's going to happen? You die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. Or John, uh, 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death to life. How? Because we love the brothers, the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. The point is, God himself is life. And separation from God is separation from life. And the constant temptation to turn from God and to take control of yourself is a deceitful trick that always leads in death. And if you look back in your own personal history, you'll find the times that you made decisions you wish you wouldn't have had. And that through Christ, there's a way that this counterintuitive way of living, of dying to self, actually leads to greater life. And the stories you're actually happy about, that you're glad that you did, will almost always include some degree of self-sacrifice that for a greater good, you said no and you disciplined yourself for living, which is going to be important as you go through the day-to-day. And when you have the opportunity for cutting corners versus living with integrity, 
believe that doing the right thing in integrity will actually give you a richer, more abundant life. And it's not out of weakness, it's out of strength that you maintain that character through Christ. That's our goal. And uh, thanks for your patience for such a huge topic being hit this early in the morning. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the garden room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day.